Podcast Against Disease. I'm Natalie Fodiatis, your host for the show, and with me, my guest is Dr. Christoph Roberson, and uh, we will be talking about communication today. So, Dr. Roberson, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for us? Will do. Hi, Natalie. My name is Christoph Roberson. I am a teaching faculty member in biology here at Johns Hopkins University, and I've been doing that for about seven years. Great, and I had the pleasure of taking Dr. Roberson's class, uh, Intro Bio, Semesters 1 and 2, and it was a the very pleasure. great class. Yes, for sure, 100%. I'd do it again. <laughs> That's good to hear. Dr. Roberson, I know that before you became a full-time educator, you were involved in research, and could you tell us some of the factors that led to your decision to become a full-time educator? I think part of it was not known to me at the time. I always say that What played a big role, I would say, was happenstance as well as opportunity. At the time when I was doing research, I was really into research. I mean, that was my goal, and I still love research to this day. But I also felt that the way in which people communicated science to me and the way that people talked about it was really important to my training and also to my enjoyment of it. So when I had a chance to kind of talk about science in a different way, not to scientists, but rather to people who didn't know so much about it, but wanted to, I found that to be really a fascinating thing. And it was also not so easy. It was something that just like science, you had to think very carefully about how are you going to put this? And what level do you have to tell people and talk to people about it? So I had an opportunity to become involved in a course that was sort of in its early stages, and I really enjoyed it. And it kind of all happened from there. That's great. And along those same lines of how do you communicate knowledge, as an educator, you have somewhat of a similar position as a clinician in that your knowledge and understanding of a topic far exceeds that of your students. And your goal is to communicate in such a way that your students leave with some fundamental understanding and that knowledge gap closes a little bit. How do you do that? Well, I think what I have found to be a really important aspect in helping someone to see the relevance of a topic as to why is it that we're talking about this and why is this even worth learning is to give them a direct relevance to something that they can relate to in their own lives. So, for instance, when I talk to you about a topic in class, such as the life cycle of a fungus... Now, you might think that that is so irrelevant to my life, and why are we possibly spending any time discussing this in a class where I'm a pre-med and this is meaningless to me? But if I told you that there were similarities, let's say, in the life cycle of a fungus to other organisms that are very much in line with what you want to do in your life, well, then you have more of an interest And I think closing the knowledge gap becomes a matter of figuring out, all right, well, what is it that people are interested in? That's one thing. But also, how is it relevant to them? And then getting them curious. Because a lot of the learning happens from the person themselves. You know, I cannot force you to learn, but I can show you how to do it. And I can give you reasons to think about it. But you, the learner, you have to do that alongside me. So a big part of my job in closing the knowledge gap is to make you interested 
and give you the tools to find answers. Which you do very, very well, and I love fungi, so I also loved that unit as well. At least you were someone who did, yeah. <laughs> and, okay, so along those lines of making topics relevant to people who may not find them to be at first, what are some of the barriers to student learning that you've encountered, and how have you overcome them? Well, I think there are different reasons for why person nowadays we're talking Johns Hopkins of course is a different type of university than some other universities I'm talking about community colleges or state schools right they have different populations but either way I would say there are reasons for why a student is taking a class and usually it's not just for the purpose of taking the class I mean there are some cases I would say where someone really does sign up only because of knowledge meaning wanting to gain knowledge but a lot of times people take the course because they quote have to it is just a prerequisite. And so when you say, what are some of the barriers that I've encountered? A lot of it is, is things like apathy, as you said, and lack of interest. I don't really care about this. And I think the way I overcome that is, again, to find something that makes you realize this is important to you. And also, you have a way of contributing to this. You know, I'm not just the only person who is talking to you. You can converse back with me. You can ask me questions. And it just becomes much more of a, of a communication, I think education does, when you have someone who initially might not be interested, but then realizes, oh, okay, I see how that relates to something else that I am interested in, and I can actually tell you about it. So I think having communications with people and keeping an open line of communication is really important. And has that understanding of how effective communication can be a teaching tool, has that changed for you over time or how have you adapted or how have you grown as as an instructor in your communication strategies? I definitely think I have changed over time. When you first become an instructor, there is this sense of I am here to impart knowledge and I want to make absolutely positively clear and sure that everyone knows how much of an expert I am. And so I will use the terms and the words that show that, and I will write those questions that challenge you. And I mean, all of this is to some extent necessary, but I think what I have found very important is to seek feedback, to seek continuous feedback from people who are taking the course, or even better, people who took the course previously and, and tell you, well, this was useful and this was hard. People who are open. And to that extent, you have to know those people. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to have a, a relationship of trust with people who don't mind telling you that this didn't work so well. But listening to their feedback is really important to me. And I think the way that I have now changed a little bit, or I think even a lot, is it's not so important to me to tell everyone how much more I know. I mean, I know what I know, and people will come to know what I know. But what's important is that you understand I'm here to help you get to where you want to be. And if that doesn't involve using a lot of big words, or if it takes more time to explain a concept that should be possible to teach in five minutes, but we're going to spend 15 minutes on it, that's fine with me. So it's changed in that regard. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a change for the better, for sure, when yeah, it comes to... So. Yeah, when it comes to the goals of instruction and... I would imagine that that feedback that you elicit is to 
make sure that your students are are understanding what they need to understand or what you want them to leave with as opposed to did you like it or did you not like it exactly right the kinds of feedback that you seek are just what you said which is tell me how this helped you learn something and that's really important feedback to have and you can be honest with me you can be open with me i can also see that through assessments that i give but again having the person tell you this and also just showing a level of interest you know when you're having a conversation with someone tells you a lot absolutely so you teach a, a large lecture to 300 students and when you're trying to get some communication from this large group of students back to you how do you facilitate that if you can't speak to each one individually what are some of the the methods that you have or the the tricks that you try to do to find out what's going on yeah it's true in a big class it is virtually impossible to have everyone communicate with you as you would let's say in a class of 10 or 15 one thing i think that i always say is there is no way that in this big classroom we are all going to be able to talk and you can't all talk to me during our class time. Class time is actually very limited. I mean, in most colleges, you either have a class three times a week or more likely twice a week or even just once a week. So your contact time with an instructor in class is very limited. What you have to do is find other opportunities to talk with an instructor. And so I seek a lot of that communication Uh, that sort of flow of communication from the group in those uh, outside events. Things like my office hours, you know, you try to schedule them as much as you can, and not everyone will make them, but some can. If you don't have the opportunity to do that, you know, you can engage as an instructor in other events where students are present, whether or not it's a, a dinner, a lunch, a coffee, or something like that, where people just have an opportunity to talk to you I think I, I do some of that, and it's, it's been very successful for me. Obviously, email is one. Uh, I think that's becoming sort of the standard. If you want to contact someone, you send an email to them. And unfortunately, as you know, we receive so many sometimes that we cannot keep on top of all of them, especially when you have 300 people. And 10% of the class is constantly emailing you. That's 30 per day just from one subset of people. And it's, it's just a lot. So you have to also kind of acknowledge just how much time you can spend with that. But uh, the other thing that I do is I, I look for information, for instance, by giving surveys. You know, I can give a, a brief survey to, sh- to show me what is it that people are more comfortable with. So I try to do all of those things. And I, I do encourage people to seek me out outside the classroom if they can. Mm-hmm. Would you say that you can kind of look at those students who do come to talk to you outside of class as being somewhat representative of all of those others who don't come and kind of use them to do a pulse check? I would say that there's no question that some of the individuals who come are representative of a larger group. That I'm convinced of. I would say that in a class like mine, I've been actually quite fortunate in that I have people show up every week. I mean, that's not always the case. So I get a continuous mechanism of feedback or source of feedback. That's just as important as feedback. You have to have it ongoing, not just once a semester. But there are probably people in the class who I don't hear from, you know, where there isn't someone here that I talk with every two weeks even or so that is representative. 
of that subset of people. So I, I think for sure there is going to be representation of a, of a larger group, but not necessarily the entire group. But again, it is up to me to some extent to seek out where would those individuals be. So one thing that I can do is figure out, well, I know I have students, let's say, who are first generation, low income, who are from out of state, but I'm not hearing from them. So let me go to places where they are and let me seek out individuals who deal with them. And then I can actually start to facilitate some of those discussions. I think that's equally important than me just waiting for people to come to me. I also have to do my job and go to them. Right, which is, is very conscientious on your part. And one of the reasons why you're such a great teacher, I would well, say. Well, that depends on who you ask. <laughs> well, we're asking me, and that's what I have you're to say. You're in charge. <laughs> kind of going along with that, or this analogy that we're developing as um, clinician, as educator, and patient as student. Students come to you with concerns. Some of them probably don't want to be there, but they need to be there. Others probably don't need to be there, but they think they do. And the outcomes of these interactions that you have with them kind of fall on a spectrum of success. Some of those students wind up doing well and others not so well. Is there uh, any way that you could characterize the communication behaviors of, of both those groups of students, the ones who wind up succeeding and the ones that don't? That's an interesting point. Because I would say that when you just look at the actual communication itself, which is what is said between what we might call a successful student, whatever that means. I mean, oftentimes we equate success to doing well on an exam or an assignment. And you and I both know that that's a very limited aspect of being successful in the course. I mean, you can do well on an assignment and really not know anything about what's going on or at the very least have very little appreciation of why it's important. But uh, if we use that as the sort of metric that we're, that we're looking at, the kinds of conversations that you have with a successful versus unsuccessful student are often not that different. And what I find is more of a differentiating factor is the, the number of times that people seek out this kind of conversation. For instance, someone who understands that, okay, I need to do something here, uh, I'm not interested in this topic, it doesn't excite me, or I'm not doing as well as I, I think I, I should be doing, they will keep coming back. They won't just see me once. I also notice that as they continue to come back, they change in terms of how they are approaching their conversations with me. It might start out with, tell me what I need to do. As in, you're the expert, you know there's this fix all solution, and if I do this, I should be able to get a much better score. But education isn't like that, and neither is medicine. There's not just this one drug, oftentimes, that I can give you as a physician or this one tool as, a, as, a, as an educator. But what people who are good will do is they'll say, I tried this, and here's what I found. And then I can get feedback on that. They will seek very specific answers from me. It's not just tell me about this topic. It's more about here's what I understand, but here's what I do not understand. And I'm trying to fill this gap of knowledge. And I can ask you a specific question, and it's much better because now I know what their question is, and they're looking for that feedback. If I just start talking for 20 minutes, 
I'm guessing that 80% of what I say is probably not all that useful. Yeah, sometimes it can be hard for people to pay attention for that long. That's the other problem. (laughs) If it didn't make sense the first time around in class, right, why would it make sense the second time around just because you're sitting across from me? It's not. But it will if you've thought about it and if you've identified it as a gap in your knowledge. Yeah, and spent a little bit of time grappling with it. And as you said, said, this is what I get. And this is what I don't understand. And then you can help fill in the gaps there. Yeah, and I think, you know, getting at this notion of the clinician, let's say the patient uh, educator, I mean, it's the same thing when a physician is making a decision about how to treat a person. The patient can also contribute to that. I mean, a patient can talk a little bit about here's the kind of pain that I experience. Here's what it feels like. Here's how it kind of changes over the course of the day. Here are things that I'm doing that exacerbate the pain. And the physician should then listen to that and not talk, but listen and think about, well, what is this telling me? You know, what kind of things might I be thinking about here now as a trained clinician? And what can I talk to the patient about that might even crystallize that further? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And it's bringing to my mind an idea of sort of this uh, game of, Picking up clues and, you know, like a treasure hunt. Right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, sometimes we do see doctors more as the fixers. I I have to say, if you go to a dentist and and you have a tooth pain and you say, well, my, my lower molars, one of them hurts, I mean, you're not asking the person to tell you why it hurts. You just want them to fix the problem. <laughs> right. Uh, but, but I'm just saying that sometimes, and certainly in education, that doesn't work like that. And, and even in, in medicine, often it just doesn't. I would agree with that. I think it's a matter of persistence is important and, and being open to trying more things. If you're going to a teacher or to a doctor and telling them, uh, you know, give me the solution here. And in some instances, of course, that's what you need. Um, but in other instances, there's a little bit more of a give and take, and there's a little bit more of, okay, I'm going to try this and see if it works, and report back, and then adapt and try something else if necessary. Absolutely. So switching gears a little bit to uh, communication of science and research more generally, what is your overall assessment of the state of communication in science? Well, I think scientists are generally trained, and I'm talking now about a person who pursues science after college, such as in, in a graduate program. They are trained to communicate fundamentally with other scientists. So as your training progresses, you become more familiar with the field, you start to really delve into a specific kind of research problem. That's the whole point of graduate school. And in the process, you start giving talks. You start giving talks to your lab members at meetings. You give poster sessions. But these are all geared towards other scientists and actually scientists in that field. So that's the state. And I think I will say that in this country and in other countries as well, I like the fact that we do have a system where you can write up results that you have in science and you can submit them to a scientific journal. The results will be reviewed by other peers, they can check it, and you can then publish those results. I mean, I think that's a good thing to do, to give people the opportunity 
to decide how to write these papers, get feedback, and then publish it. So it works well for the scientists. I think the problem or the challenge in, in science communication overall, more generally, as you asked, is that it doesn't work so well when we want to communicate that with the public, particularly with members of the public who are not scientists. And that's a real problem because if you ask a person who is not a scientist to read your paper, to be honest with you, I would really be amazed if even 10% of that information is intelligible. And science is what it is. It's, it's a lot of terms. It's graphs, it's charts, but even those are not just on the y-axis, it's more versus less, and on the (laughs) x-axis, it's with or without drug. Just complicated. Yeah, no, it's not, (laughs) this is what happens on Mondays, and this is what happens on Wednesdays, and look, the bar goes up or down. I mean, a lot of these charts are derivatives of derivatives of... of, Multidimensional. Of multidimensional color coordinated, (laughs) I mean, you name it, it is difficult for scientists to understand what these things mean let alone someone who has no, no background in science. So I, I think my overall assessment of the state of communication is that it's pretty good within the scientific community, I think, at least within the subfields, because we do have scientific meetings and journals, but it is a problem still, and this is not a novel problem, when we think about communicating it with the larger public, such as people living in communities, right, who actually would benefit from knowing the results of some of this. Absolutely, and... One of the things that I've thought about in my journey in education is the more knowledgeable you become on a particular topic, the more uh, difficult it is to break it down because there are certain concepts that to you seem fundamentally important to your overall understanding of it. And there's a certain level of knowledge that's required to get that concept. And so figuring out how can I, in a way, bastardize this this truth that I've learned so that someone who doesn't know as much as I know can understand it, that can be really hard to do. It can be very difficult. I agree. And actually, now that you say that, this is a challenge I face every single time when I stand in front of a group of students who don't know it, and I want to get them closer to that knowledge, but there's that gap. And I realize, though, I know a lot of this stuff, but why is this more important than that? But it is up to me as the educator or the the scientist or whoever to figure that out, to say, what, what can we start with? What is something that you definitely need to know, right? What is, like you just said, you need to know something to have a conversations about anything. So that's not so easy to do. And then you also have to figure out you can't, it's not enough to just tell your students, you just have to trust me that this is important. That's right. I mean, you can to a certain extent, but you're going to need to give them enough compelling evidence that one, they should trust you and two, that it does make sense, even though they have all these gaps in their knowledge. And I feel like that the ability to do that is kind of a critical component in gaining interest among your students, or if you were in, you know, in a, in a physician's office and, in having your patient take an interest in something that you've been struggling to get them to have an interest in is connecting those dots well enough without them needing to have all of the background understanding. I could not agree more. And I think, as you said, that's something that doesn't also happen immediately. 
it's not a skill that you learn overnight. You have to think very carefully about, and I do this all the time, how did I present this last semester? I take notes. I say, okay, that didn't go so well. You know, a lot of questions I got after that showed me that people didn't understand it, so how can I change this? Uh, I ask people what made sense and what doesn't. It really is an active investment on the part of the educator, the researcher, the physician, whoever it is, to really seek out how things are working and how they're not. Going back to that earlier question of facilitating the flow of communication from a large group of people, in your case, your students, um, back to, to you, and looking in the broader context of scientific research and communication, do you think there's a misalignment of research priorities and community needs? Uh, kind of the classic ivory tower scenario? And if so, how... How would you say that problem could be addressed? My answer here would be to say that I definitely think that there is no question in some cases a misalignment of the priorities that we have set as either a country or a community and what the actual needs are. Now, generally speaking, the reason that research happens in a given field is because there is a need for answers in that field. And uh, if you are a scientist, let's say you are done with graduate school, you've done three, four, six, whatever years of postdoctoral studies, you get employed, finally, uh, at an institution, uh, and you've spent a lot of time getting there, but now you have to set up a lab, and you have to hire people to work in that lab. The way you do that, generally speaking, if you're at a university, is you apply for funding. You apply for grant funding. And that funding can come from different sources, but one of the major ones is the National Institute of Health, for instance. Well, if you want to get funding, you have to write a grant that lays out exactly what you plan to do, how long it's going to take you to do it, and what your specific aims of your study are, and you have a certain amount of time to do that. Your success rate of receiving that money will go up, of course, if you are applying for funding in a field that has funding available for that field. And so to some extent, the scientist is dependent on doing work that can get funded. Because if the scientist can't get funded, well, then they can't hire people. And if they don't have people, they can't do research, and they can't publish, and that's pretty much the end of that. So I think what I'm getting at here is that if there's a misalignment, it's often a matter of how much funding has been set aside for, say, a given area of research versus how much we still need to do in that area. And the question really comes down to, well, who decides where the money goes? And I think that gets back to, it's a number of different levels, some very high, some not so high. Yep, and that can be a complicated conversation to explore. Um, yeah, it definitely can. I, I think there is a need for the people who make those decisions, who often are scientists themselves, some of them anyway, to really have a good sense on what are some of the needs of a community. You know, if you were to go out in Baltimore City, for instance, there is a glaring, obvious need for certain types of things in, in parts of the city, whether or not that is food, certain types of food or, or housing or whatnot. So there is a need. We can see it. It's right in front of our eyes. So then where's the money for us to fix it, right? Where are the people who can fix it? I, I think it's the same with education. I want to do things in my classroom. I'd love to do things. 
but I can't just do them because I don't have time or money to do them. So I have to apply for funds that allow me to do that. But again, if it's not in line with what the, the funding agency wants, it's not going to help. Right. And one of the longer-term goals of Humanity Against Disease is to uh, create uh, funds so that grants can be provided to meet commun- specific community needs and kind of free up some uh, some money so that people can explore and pursue priorities that are directly facing specific communities rather than being dependent on NIH funding or other funding institutions that may not have as much of an interest in what's happening at local levels. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and actually, even perhaps there might be an interest that can be evoked if communication would happen and say, hey, this is a need that we have identified. You need to show that there is an identifiable need. So someone has to go out and actually show, hey, look, this is the way it is. But then who knows? There might be people at the NIH or other philanthropic organizations like the Howard Hughes Medical Institute who would be willing to set aside some part of money for that to happen. But we need people at the front lines who can identify what those needs are and also show others who are able to give funds that there is an actual need. And going along with that, people on the front lines, kind of boots on the ground and tying it back with researchers in a lab, um, what are some of the ways that this whole group, clinicians, researchers, scientists, um, could improve their communication, whether on the individual level or kind of as a whole unit at the institutional level, so that there is better flow of information and communication um, in the in the, the research capacity and at the community level? I think that's a very good question in the sense that it should give people a, a sort of a heads up, that's the only way I can think about it, that if you are only communicating with one group of people, you're probably not doing everything you can. So as a growing scientist, let's say, someone who is even in graduate school, it might actually do you quite well to find opportunities to talk with people outside of the graduate program or the, the department. There are ways you can do that. Now, it takes your time. It also takes approval, oftentimes, of the, the lab, uh, the person who is in charge of your, your research. But it all boils down to how can this be improved by, again, finding the, the need. You know, there's a need. I'd like to be involved in talking to the community, maybe identifying some venues. When can I talk to people? Where? Where, where are some organized events where I, as someone who has knowledge, can impart that knowledge? Um, we can also be trained as scientists to do better at communicating our science to people who are not scientists. You are trained in the lab to communicate with other people in the lab. I mean, it might not even be obvious training, but it's kind of implied training because you're asked to give lab meetings, you are asked to talk to your committees, your thesis committees, all of that is training, but why couldn't we say, well, let's now have you talk to a different group of people and give you feedback on how you could do this better? I think that's something we should really think about a lot, is giving people opportunity to do it, but also giving them feedback on how it's done well. And that seems to be a staple of business school, for sure. I know the, the fundamental principle in marketing is know your audience. And um, along those lines of feedback, that means that you also have to be 
open to receiving feedback, which I would say requires a certain amount of humility. Um, and then as the, the person who's giving the feedback, you, you have to be constructive, I would say, as well. I completely agree. I mean, you, you don't want to come across as being the all-knowing person, so humility is, is important, and it's, it's a real thing. And also, if you give feedback, give feedback that is useful and valuable versus just saying, I didn't like this, tell me why not, and also, how could you do it better? It's interesting that you say the business school model. I agree with you. It, when you look at the types of trainings or, or sources of, of public speaking, for instance, that are available even here, it's all through the business school, it seems like. They've kind of monopolized that. But I would say, well, look, anyone can go. You don't have to be a CEO of a company. You can be a scientist. And I bet you, even if you go to a theater, you know, have people who do this for a living who tell you how to project, who, how to use the right words, there are ways we can train ourselves to become better communicators. And I don't think right now it's a big enough aspect of our training. I mean, people will argue that you're going to be a scientist, you should study science 24-7. And I agree that that is the crux of what you should be doing, but there are so many other elements to science, including communication, that we also need to think about. I would agree with that 100%. One of my majors in undergrad was communication studies. Um, So thank you for being here and talking with me about it. And last question, as you are a teacher, um, if there was one message, if you could implant a message into every student's brain and have them actually, you know, keep it, what would that be? That's a tough one, <laughs> Natalie. I think I would have several, but a message that I could implant would be a message that I think you can refer to no matter where you are in your stage of education. And one of those would be to always think carefully about why you are where you are. Are you the kind of person who is going to this class or to this university or to this college only because you feel you have to? The answer is, it's very unlikely. There is a reason you're there is to get you somewhere, but there's something that you're learning. And so if you're in a classroom and you're asking yourself, how is this helping me? Find a reason for how it's helping you. If it's not obvious to you, find it. Don't just assume that this is the worst class ever and that everyone else dislikes it. Find a reason for why this is actually something that is useful to you. Always question, where do I want to go? And it's okay if it changes. It's fine. You can change majors, jobs. We do it all the time. But just remain conscious of what the purpose of what you're doing is. It's to become an educated person. It's to meet people. It's to be someone who has more knowledge than when you got here. And if you can do that, I think you'll be just fine. And hopefully our listeners have more knowledge now than they did at the start of it uh, as a result of this conversation. So thank you again for coming on the show. You're welcome. I also hope people have a little bit more knowledge, but uh, it's been a good time. Have you ever listened to the Humanity Against Disease podcast and wondered how to get in touch with us? Have you ever tried to contact us by Carrier Pigeon and failed? Well, we have news for you. You can reach us by a couple of different methods. So we got our electronic mail address, which is againstdisease at gmail.com. We have a Twitter handle, which is at against disease. 
We've got an Instagram, which is also at Against Disease. And we have a Facebook, which the easiest way to find us is to type Humanity Against Disease into the search tab and like us or message us about anything. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see our regular website, which is updated a little less often, but has a lot of the pillars, mission statements, et cetera, that is humanityagainstdisease.com.